Yeah, hey, as you mentioned, Nick Theobald, I am a father to two boys, uh, eight and five, or he would say five and a half. And then we also have a baby through foster care, and he's about eight months old, and he's a good dude, pretty chill baby. Uh, I am also a husband, not to brag, but a uh, husband to the most beautiful and amazing and kind and thoughtful and it's yeah you get it so anyway she's great um so in any case my wife and i peg nick we've been coming here for about two years and we we lived in grand rapids about five years and what drew us to encounter is it is so amazing i don't know how many other churches you've been to or if this is your first time how many churches you've been to but it is amazing how encounter is so poignantly missional to serve, love, and reach Grand Rapids. It is so cool, the value of loving where you live and serving those you live amongst. So it was so natural for us to want to be a part of this. And when Joe approached me a few weeks, a few months ago about the idea of speaking and sharing a weekend in the series, How to Hope, he did a great job of breaking down why we're talking about this now. Like the idea that Jeremiah was sent by God to reach his chosen people, Israel, at such a critical juncture, right on the precipice of disaster. Joe laid out to me the different ways in which we look for hope and and don't find it, and that our hope is only found in God. So when Joe asked me if I could be a part of sharing, I knew instantly my reaction was no thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm all set. Like, you have such good hair, right? Like, he's such a good-looking guy. Anyways, he should be up here. Like, he's a good speaker. No, obviously, as soon as he invited me to be able to do that, I was honored and pleased and had indigestion and all the good things that you'd want to have. But um, in any case, the interesting thing about what we're talking about today, Jeremiah 35, and as I reference Jeremiah 35, those of you who are, like, really good at knowing the Bible are like, What happens in Jeremiah 35? And we're going to find out the answer pretty quick. It's like none of us know. I mean, I know because I'm like supposed to know for sure. But like you probably maybe aren't that familiar with it. It's pretty unknown. And also fun fact, there's like a lot in there. So we're going to go through a lot of narrative together. And I'm going to really encourage you. I mean, the, the early service had to wake up early. In theory, you've slept in. So you should be well-rested because <laughs> we're going to cover kind of a lot of ground. So if you're feeling tired, chug coffee. If you're not, hang in there. We're going to go through it together. Um, a, a fun fact about me, something that you need to know about me for this whole thing to tie together, is that I, Nick Theobald, am a highly competitive person. Like, if I get in a situation where there's winning or losing on the line, like, game on. I'm a classic Enneagram 3. Is anyone familiar with like Enneagram? Anyone else in Enneagram 3? Raise your hand. We're going to fight after the service. Uh, we'll see in the parking lot. I'm just kidding. Obviously, that'd be so inappropriate. Uh, but in any case, like when I get in a situation, whether it's at work or it's in a social interaction or it's last night playing Candyland with my five and a half year old son, I, it's not that I like have to win when I play Candyland against my son. It's that I'm better than him. So I choose to win. And Candyland is ridiculous. It's all skill. Peanut is a candy. It doesn't make any sense. But the thing that's being, about being competitive that is interesting, and you don't have to be an overly competitive person to do this or to feel this way. You can be somewhat competitive or not competitive at all. Is that 
when you're competitive, it's great in some contexts, but categorically terrible in some other situations. And when it comes to faith in Christ, being competitive teaches you some awful habits. And we're going to look at today this habit that so many of us have, myself included, very much included in this camp. In the idea that we as a people, instead of putting and placing our hope in God, in Christ, we place our hope in ourselves. When you're competitive or even just when you're an adult, you're taught early and often to be self-reliant, to be dependent on yourself, to lean on nothing. The idea of independence is held up as a high value in our culture, that you depend on no person, no job, no man, no one, no nothing. You are a fully functional adult. You are independent and can hope and trust in yourself. The problem with that is, as we're going to find in Jeremiah 35, is that our hoping, trusting, and relying on ourselves actually blocks our ability to, one, accept Jesus as Savior in the first place, or two, it blocks our ability to delve into deeper discipleship. We get stuck in a rut where we feel like, sure, we're a Christian, sure, we care about God and Jesus and the mission, but it feels like we're at an impasse. It feels like we're not getting further in our relationship. It was fast and exciting at first coming to Christ, but now it feels stagnant and stale. So we're going to look at Jeremiah 35 and a couple things that we have to note. And Joe and Caleb last week did a great job of setting up what we're going to be talking about today. Something you have to have in mind as we go is that this word from Jeremiah came from God to Israel. And if you don't know much about Israel, Israel was God's chosen people. God made it clear in Genesis 12 through Abraham that he chose them, that he had a mission for them, that they would number greater than the stars, and that he would use them to bless all nations, that through Israel, God would bless others. And God used Israel for a long time to do just that. Through Israel, other tribes back in the Old Testament actually came to join Israel. We all know about, or we, a lot of us know about, the 12 tribes of Israel. There was other tribes that actually hitched their wagon to Israel because of the testimony of Israel to the one true God. Other tribes would encounter God through Israel and join in. We're going to see one of these tribes in the passage today. Another thing to keep in mind as we're jumping into the text is that as God made promises to Israel— of blessings, of light to the nations, of greatness. He also promised consequences. Consequences if they turned their back on him. Consequences if they shirked their prophets, his prophets. Consequences if they didn't follow the law. That as there was promise of blessing, there was promise of consequence. And if you know anything from Jeremiah from this series, you know we're at the con moment of consequence that Babylon is banging on the door. We're going to be in Jeremiah 35, which is by Ch Jeremiah 37, two chapters later. The last king has died. Nebuchadnezzar has won and propped up his own king. We are at the precipice of disaster 
for Israel. This is the moment just before the destruction comes. So it's interesting to note, what is God's word to his chosen people when death is banging on the door? When hope seems far off? We're going to dive in. Jeremiah 35, 1, we're going to read one and then we're going to break one verse and we're going to break it down. Jeremiah 35, verse 1, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Pausing there. So we have Jeremiah, prophet, sent to Israel to reveal God's will and God's heart for his people. We're at the stage of Jehoiakim, who is that last king who dies during the siege within just a few weeks and months of this exact moment. And we have Jeremiah getting sent on a mission. Let's see what that mission is. Verse 2 through 5. By the way, heads up, I'm going to say some names wrong. If you happen to be fluent in ancient Hebrew, please tell me after. Like, that's a weird flex, but it, you can tell me. All right, so we're at verse 2. Go to the Rechabite family. This is God sending Jeremiah, God's word to Jeremiah. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord. So, verse 3, I went to get Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, different Jeremiah in this situation. Fun fact, thank you, Old Testament. Uh, the son of Habazaniah, I think I did well, and his brothers and all his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. So, Jeremiah is being sent to go get the Rechabites, bring them to the temple or a side room. So, I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdaliah, the man of God. It was next to the room of the official, which was over that of Masiah, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. This is not going to be about Shalom, just an FYI. <laughs> We're going to be looking at some other stuff. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the Rechabites and said to them, drink some wine. We're going to pause there. So we have Jeremiah sent to get the Rechabites, bring them to the temple, give them some wine. Jeremiah, by verse 5, has gone to the Rechabites, brought them to the temple, gave them some wine. Prophecy fulfilled, right? Like, we're done. Let's wrap it up. Sermon over. Zach should come out now. Okay, anyways. No, obviously not. The story continues. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. This is where it's going to start to get a little odd, a little different. All right. So verse 6, and this is where it's like, you want to glaze over, but shouldn't. So uh, verse 6, here we go. But they, the Rechabites, replied, we do not drink wine. A twist. <laughs> Before, because our forefather, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, you must never build houses, sow seed, or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but you must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. We, this is the Rechabites saying to Jeremiah now, we have obeyed everything our forefather Jehonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we nor our wives nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to live in or the vine had vineyards, fields, or crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything 
our forefather Jehonadab has commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, come, we must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian and Aramean armies. So we have remained in Jerusalem. We got to break this down. When you leave here, you're going to go outside. You're going to have a soft pretzel. I recommend the one with cheese and pepperoni on it. And then you're going to go home, and maybe you have barbecue, maybe you go out to a restaurant. Usually I don't eat after having that kind of pretzel, but you can. It's up to you. Uh, in any case, you're going to go somewhere, and maybe someone asks you, what did you talk about at church today? To which you're going to reply, some bald guy came and said about the Rechabites, to which they're going to say, who's that? Because, let's be honest, unless you're a professor at Calvin over the Old Testament, you don't know who these people are, and neither did I until Joe said, you're going to have to get to know these people pretty well. <laughs> so we got to break this down a little bit. The Rechabites are like the band that you discover before they were cool, except for this band was around 3,000 years ago and never got cool. But we're going to look at them and pretend that they're cool anyway. So here's what we know about the Rechabites. They were clearly, and it's clear as day in the text, they were clearly nomads. Meaning they did not build houses. They followed this Jehonadab guy's instruction. They didn't build houses. They kind of roamed around based on what was best for them at that time. Another thing, which is not clear in this story, if you cycle back all the way to Exodus, you're actually going to find that we've seen these Rechabite people before. The Rechabites have actually been, they've been nomads, but they've been nomads in and around Israel for hundreds of years at this point. And the reason that they've been nomads in and around Israel is this whole light to the nations idea. We've talked about this, that Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, that other nations would get to know God through their witness. And this is exactly why the Rechabites are here in the first place. They have been, in, they, back in Moses' time, tied their ship, tied their wagons to the nation of Israel. So they're not one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but they are a part of Israel nonetheless. So we have to pause here and ask ourselves a question we've already talked about so far. Why does that matter at all? Why do we care about the Rechabites? Like, as a review, Babylon is knocking on the doors. They're about to get mowed down by the largest army in the known world at this point. And God says to Jeremiah, go. And if Jeremiah could go anywhere right now, it's super important where he goes. So why does God send Jeremiah to the Rechabites? How is this our hope? What hope is there in this story? We have to look at verses 12 to 16 to get the full picture and break it down. So let's verse, look at verses 12 to 16. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go and tell the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his descendants not to drink wine. And this command has been kept. To this day, they do not drink wine because they obey their forefather's command. But I, the Lord, has spoken to you again and again. Yet you, Israel, 
have not obeyed me. Again and again, I sent you all my prophets, my servants, the prophets to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in in the land I have given to you and your ancestors. But you, Israel, have not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jehonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefather gave them. But these people have not obeyed me. See, the whole reason why at this critical juncture, this moment when Israel is falling apart, the whole reason why God sends Jeremiah to the Rechabites is for us to see a deep and vast contrast between two groups of people. First, we have the Rechabites who were given a command by their great, great, I don't know how many greats, like a lot of great forefather, Jehonadab, not to drink wine, not to build houses, not to sow plants, make, not to plant stuff. I don't know how that stuff works, but not to make vineyards, essentially. And then they followed it. Those of you who are parents, you know what this is like. You know you have your kids, and you tell them a long list of rules, and you give it to them, and you tell them it just once, and then for the rest of their lives and for generations everyone follows all the rules, right? No, obviously not. Like, you tell your kids instructions, and it might as well be just like, I said the opposite of what I meant. Like, it's just like, it doesn't land or something. But these Rechabites were a certain breed of awesome that they were told, like, by Jehonadab, don't do these things. And they're like, we won't. Trust in what you said. We will accept this command. We will hope that you are guiding us in the right direction. And then on the other side of the equation, Jeremiah is poignantly pointing out that we have Israel, who did not have Jehonadab as a forefather. That's not even a tribe of Israel. Israel instead had the God of the universe revealing himself time and time again in so many different ways pillar of fire from heaven, manna from the skies, prophet after prophet, so many revelations. Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says, all my servants, the prophets to you, you can hear the Lord's frustration. I have made myself clear to you, Israel, time and time again. And yet, as it says in 3515, but you have not paid attention or listen to me. The interesting thing about this is that Israel is at a moment where they have to hope. They have Babylon, the greatest power in the known world at the time. They have Babylon banging on the doors. Israel had to hope. And if you've come the last two weeks, or even one of the two weeks, you've known from Caleb or from, Jer- or from Joe that Israel actually had a lot of hope at this time. Like, Jeremiah keeps going to Israel, and Israel keeps saying to them, like, we're good. <laughs> like, we got this. 
And instead of accepting what the Lord is trying to teach them, they have hope not in God, not in Christ. They have hope merely in themselves. Rather than accepting God's help and God's hope, they think, we got this, I got this, I'm about to crush it. They think they hope in their armies, they hope in their strength, they hope in their natural giftedness, they hope that if they just buckle down and try harder and think different and give more, they'll solve the problem. This is logic we all use. We get put in, pushed into a corner. We get desperate. We get exhausted. We get into a moment of despair. We feel like we're about to get taken over. And rather than hoping in Christ, so often I, so often, I, so often we hope in ourselves. We hope in our strength. We hope in our natural giftedness. We hope in our ability to make things happen and network and push harder and think smarter and push through. We say things like, if you want the job right, you do it yourself. And we miss the same way Israel missed. We fail the same way Israel fails. We, like Israel, all too often rely on ourselves and miss out on the hope that God offers us. And the interesting thing about when you hope in yourself, not only do you end up exhausted and empty and missing out on the hope that God offers you. We actually are superseding the work of Christ on the cross. Because the whole reason that Jesus goes to the cross is because we fail, right? Like, if we didn't fail, fall short of the glory of God, why would he need to do it in the first place? When we hope in ourselves, rely on ourselves, we miss out on accepting Jesus as he truly offers himself. A God who loves us, who redeems us, who accepts us no matter what. When we hope in ourselves, it's not just pride. It's missing out on the gift of hope from God to us. And the story of the Rechabites is meant to show, like, we have to stop hoping in ourselves and assuming we'll get a different result. And the question becomes, so what? What do we do about it? We're so ingrained in our culture to be self-reliant and independent that to do anything else is counted as weakness. The idea of going to someone else and telling them or communicating in any way that you're dependent, reliant, insufficient, is so countercultural and anti our culture that it would blow them away. It would be seen as weakness on your part. So how do we put our hope in God to a greater degree? There's this um, Yale professor with a PhD. And, like, by the way, like, anytime someone is referencing to you a Yale professor, like, it's not like they normally read Yale professor stuff. <laughs> like, like, I didn't, like, come up with, I'm not, like, normally reading, like, the Boston Quarterly. I don't even know what the names of the things are. But I read in a book about this guy, person, maybe they're smarter than me, and they read the Yale professor. But I read in this one book about this guy named Paul Bloom. And Paul Bloom is a Yale professor with a PhD with a focus in the psychology of pleasure or enjoyment. And Paul Bloom's conclusions after decades and years of study is that pleasure or enjoyment does not simply occur. It develops. It grows. A direct quote from Paul Bloom 
He says, people ask me, how do you get more pleasure or enjoyment out of life? And my answer is extremely pedantic, which means simple. I Googled it a couple days ago. So (laughs) most of you already knew that. Fun fact. Anyways, my answer is extremely simple. Study more. The key to enjoying wine isn't drinking expensive wine. It's learning about it. We, this is not by Paul Bloom, so it's less intelligent, it's by me. If we love something, if we care about something, we will invest in the details. Every Friday, I don't know if you're a podcast person, I'm a podcast person. Every Friday, a podcast post by these five guys in the Chicago area, they have one, the most beautiful Chicago accent since the superfans on SNL. But they spend like two hours, I'm from Chicago originally, they spend like two hours talking about every detail about every Chicago sports player possible that has happened in the last week. And I love every second of it, except when they talk about the Sox, because the White Sox are the worst. But other than, like, Detroit Tiger people could probably agree with that. But in any case, when it's Cubs better, but in any case, like, I love that stuff because I love Chicago sports. I have a heart for it, so I invest in it, and I study it. Jen Wilkin, the smart person who I learned about Paul Bloom from, uh, she's a Christian author and speaker, She said, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. I'll say that again. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And I will add to that, we cannot hope in a God we do not know. When we care about something, when we love something, we invest ourselves into it. When you get passionate about a project or an idea or a trip, I'm the guy who's on TripAdvisor reading the 10th page of the forums. If I'm going to Argentina, I'm going to learn. I'm not going to Argentina. I mean, I would. Like, we could go together. But, like, I would go to Argentina if you invited me is what I'm trying to say up here. No, I'm just kidding. But I, like, care about the details. When you care or passionate about something, you invest in the details. And if our goal as a people, as a church, is to put our hope in God rather than ourselves, if you ask yourself the question, Do you rely on yourself too often? Do you hope in yourself too often? As opposed to hoping in Christ, leaning in Christ. My encouragement to you this morning is to invest in knowing him more. I believe that if we truly knew God as he is, as he truly is, what he wants for us, what he has for us, who he is as a God, for us, there is no way we'd hem and haw about putting our hope in him. We would do it in a heartbeat. If our goal is to put our hope greater, if this series about how to hope is about putting our hope greater in God, it is by investing more in the relationship. And I don't care whether today you start reading the book of Jeremiah for the first time. It'd be a weird book to start with for the first time reading the Bible, but does it matter? You could start with Jeremiah, Psalms, 2 Timothy, whatever. Not like it doesn't matter, like the Bible's important and the books are different. But at the same time, like if you care about something, you will invest. If you don't pray often, my encouragement to you is not find the perfect time to pray when you have the leather-bound books and the sofa and the candle and the Instagram-ready filter for, to post your devotional. No, it's while you're driving to work. It's waking up 10 minutes early. It's finding time to invest in the relationship. The heart cannot love. We cannot hope in a God we do not know. So my encouragement to you this morning is to invest in the relationship that is your relationship with Christ. And the reason being is because that is where our hope 
comes from. That is where our strength comes from. There's a passage that I want to close with. Um, It's not from Jeremiah, but it's from a book really close to Jeremiah, so I feel like it counts. Um, It's from Isaiah, and it has to do with this subject of strength and hope and where we get our hope. Most of you guys know it, but I think it's pretty poignant for what we're talking about today. Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31. It's going to be on the screens, or if you can flip to it real quick, that's fine. Isaiah 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary or tired, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, but young men stumble and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. If you're coming into this morning saying, I need hope. I need strength. Run to strength. Run to hope. We have a God who offers us openly and freely both. Invest, dig in, find spaces, find time, create rhythms, start new habits. Habits that aren't self-reliant, but God-reliant. We have a God who says that he will give us strength and hope. My encouragement to you this morning is run to strength, run to hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the word through Jeremiah to about your servants and these people, the Rechabites. Lord, it's a random text. doesn't all make sense. But God, what does make sense that you are here with us right now in this room, offering us hope, offering us strength. I pray for myself. And I pray for everyone in this room that as we go out into the week, that we might not go into the week without creating a rhythm or a habit or a practice or a way to invest more in knowing you. Our hearts want to love you more, want to hope in you more. God, help us to know you more and receive our hope and strength from you. Amen. Stand and sing with us. Beneath the surface of my anxious imagination. Beckons a calmness that is found in you alone. It washes over every doubt, every imperfection. Jesus, your presence is the comfort of my soul.
to focus on the things I can't control. All my attention on the wonder of this moment. Jesus, your presence is the comfort of my soul. There's nowhere I'd rather be when you're singing over me. I just wanna be here with you. I'm lost in your mystery. I'm found in your
Let's put our hands out towards God and receive his blessing as we head out into our week. The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Lord, give us that peace and your hope as we go out into this week. In your name we pray, amen.